0: From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. The Huntington Beach oil spill in California has spilt approximately 126,000 gallons of crude oil, damaging the ecosystem. Meanwhile, the KNP complex fire rages through the state destroying over 80,000 acres of land and threatening ancient sequoia trees, some of which have been standing for thousands of years. Gabrielle Cannon, a reporter for The Guardian, shares her reporting on the oil spill and the fires on this week's episode. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and stay tuned because this is News Nerds. Gabriel Cannon is a reporter for The Guardian who covers climate disasters. She joins us now to discuss the oil spill and the fires that have uh, taken place in California. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to start with the oil spill that just happened over the weekend. So what do we know about this oil spill so far?
1: It's still in under investigation, um, but there have been some updates in terms of at least how the this, this spill occurred. Um, not in terms of the, the cause, but um, the point at which the oil spilled. So this was confirmed by divers on Monday. It was validated by um remote operated vehicles that sort of go in and look at what's going on. At this point, uh, they do say that there is no longer oil being released. So that is the good news. But it, it's sort of a strange series of, uh, of events that they've discovered. So we've, we've now seen that there was a 4,000 foot section of a 17.7 mile long pipeline that sort of zigzags um, underneath the on the ocean floor, and so that was displaced. Um, it, there was roughly 105 feet of displacement, so something pretty serious must have happened to to move this pipeline. And then, within that sort of area, there was a 13-inch split, so that's where um, the leak sort of sprung. At this point, the investigation is still underway, um, and of course, cleanup efforts um, are continuing. I was actually out there this afternoon. I was on one of the vessels for the Coast Guard, and we weren't able to see Sheen on the water. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that it's gone, obviously. Uh, A lot of that is still making its way onto the shore.
0: One of your most recent articles for The uh, Guardian tells us that the spill was identified 12 hours before officials started to clean up the oil so is this normal that that 12-hour difference, uh, is it normal that, that, that the response is just that delayed?
1: Yeah, you know, that's something that, that people are pretty concerned about. So there are actually regulations that require rapid reporting, especially with a spill of this magnitude. So um, there's, there's supposed to be mechanisms in place that um, alert both officials and, and the operators of this rig that there's a problem. Um, those don't seem to have been operating correctly. Um, so we've gotten a few different sort of timelines from from various actors in this in this disaster. So from what we know right now, it looks like at a, approximately 2:30 in the morning um, there was some sort of alert, and of course it wasn't until day, daytime the following day, that would be on Saturday, that an official Alert went out and the authorities were made uh, known of, of this spill. So um, we've we've been looking at documents. Amplify, which is the, the company that owns this rig, has a spill response plan. It's been in place since 2016. Uh, in that plan, they noted the requirement for immediate notification of federal officials. Um, unfortunately that didn't end up happening. So there's still a lot of mysteries to solve here in terms of what happened when we know that there was another vessel that also identified sheen on the water. Um, and so we're still digging into exactly who know, knew what, at what point and why this cleanup didn't start sooner.
0: When something like this happens, what are the steps that you take to clean up the oil?
1: There's a few different things that can happen Um, and a lot of this depends on the type of oil that's spilled and in this particular case it was heavy crude so it was this very thick kind (laughs) of goopy oil and so for example in in other spills if you have sort of a lighter oil you can use chemical dispersants something that wasn't uh, appropriate for this oil spill so it's pretty um, pretty direct in terms of they use something called a boom which is like a large barrier that can kind of help corral the oil and stop it from going in certain directions. They also created berms on the beach. So they pushed sand up to sort of shut off these canals uh, to stop it from or stop more oil from seeping into these really delicate ecosystems in wetlands and marshes. Um, They had folks out there in little boats um, wearing protective gear, literally shoveling it out of the water. You know, so these are just, there's various different ways that you can use machines to get it up off the sand, but it is a really complicated process and it's more complicated depending on where the oil actually gets. So if it's something that it's just on the surface, you can skim the surface and sometimes get that oil up. If it's getting onto the beach and the sand, again, you can use that machinery. But in this case, when it gets into those marshlands, when it gets on the, the riprap, the you know the rocks and stuff that are, are near the shore, um, that's incredibly difficult to clean up and especially in a case where um, some of this oil is not going to be on the surface. And we may see this effort continue for several months, if not years, depending on, you know, if the oil is, is kicked up again in the winter storms.
0: So the ecosystem around the oil spill is greatly affected. And at this point from reporting that's been done, What do we know about the amount of uh, animals that have died because of the spill?
1: So at this point, we don't know officially um, what the fatalities have been. Um, I will say that initially um, authorities were optimistic about the fact that we didn't just see the level of devastation uh, that, that has been seen in other spills. At this point, only two birds have been officially recovered. That had died fortunately there was one pelican um, who had it, its feathers were oiled and so it had to be euthanized they've also recovered 13 birds that are alive and they're being cared for um, so that's hopeful and there were several reports in the early sort of hours and when this was still sort of an unfolding story of fish washing up on shore dead birds washing up on shore None of that has been, at least from officials, has been confirmed and tallied. And I, I mean, when it comes to something like this, it's just going to take a really long time to to fully grasp the, the ecological toll. We're going to unfortunately, I think, see a lot of um, a lot of the, the impact of this continue. I mean, even after cleanup crews go home, so I think for it may take many years before we fully we fully understand um, what has happened here. we've seen that with, with other spills as well. I mean, a spill happened in 2015. There was only only last year was, you know, reports kind of coming up from scientists about what had happened with, with that spill. So that was five years later. And for something, you know, of the magnitude of say Deep uh, Deepwater Horizon, it took decades to, to fully, for scientists to fully um, study the effects of, of that spill
0: migratory birds will be coming uh, through California in the coming weeks. So how will this affect them?
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that's really concerning. So these are areas that are really important habitats for birds that are coming through. Um, and at, at this point, it just really depends on on if there's oil in those areas when they land. Um, I spoke to uh, the executive director of Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy. That's one of the main areas that has been, um, you know, a, a refuge for these birds uh, that's been affected by this oil spill. And uh, and he's incredibly concerned about the possibility that this will uh, deeply impact birds that are coming through.
0: So we're now going to go to the fires also in California. There's some uh, there's a fire called the KNP Complex that has that you've been reporting on. So, mm-hmm. at this current time, what is the state of that fire?
1: So, as of today, that fire has grown to, to be more than eighty four thousand acres. It's eleven percent contained. So, this is a fire that's been burning. Lightning sp- after it was lightning strikes started um, was two separate fires and is now you know considered. The complex fire. So burning in an area of, of rugged terrain that's, of course, very difficult for firefighters to tackle, um, but it's also just fueled by this incredibly dense dry vegetation, which, of course, includes um, these beautiful trees that we, you know, know and cherish. And so that the that Sequoia National Park, Sequoia National Forests are named after.
0: At this point, um... How many firefighters are fighting those blazes right now?
1: Um, There's just under 2,000. I think the latest report was about 1,800. Um, So they definitely have a lot of crews out there fighting this fire. And, you know, there's hope that that they're going to get a handle on it as the weather starts to become more favorable.
0: So I, I know that the fire has blazed through some sequoia groves at this point do we know how many sequoias have been killed because of the fires in california this year
1: we don't know yet um and that's something that is is going to be assessed i mean as the fire footprint becomes more accessible i think there will be a better understanding of of just how devastating the fire has been um, to these particular trees and so and that may take a long time um i think there will be a, a general sense that that You know once scientists can go in um, and and better understand the severity of the fire because that's really the key point is how hot this fire was burning if the fire was able to get up into the canopies from what we've seen in in past fires we can look at from last year um, you can see that that these trees are incredibly resilient Um, they are adapted to do this they've evolved with fire But of course fires are are behaving differently than they ever have been before. And so I think there are a lot of researchers that are concerned that not only are these trees becoming more vulnerable to the flames, but they're also having a harder time bouncing back after the flames have been put out. So that's one of the the biggest sort of questions is, is whether or not this fire will burn in a good way that will help clear the forest and make room for new baby trees to grow or if it will just burn to a point where where the, the landscape itself starts to shift.
0: I don't know really, uh, you know, much about the area in California that the fire is blazing right now, but like are reporters uh, able to get very close to where the fires are? Or is that just simply too dangerous?
1: So I think for this particular fire, it's, it's unique. I mean, so California typically does allow reporters to be on the fire line Um, but this is run by a federal agency and so some of those rules tend to be a little bit different and so I know especially in the beginning of this fire there was some frustration (laughs) with reporters that weren't just weren't getting the kind of access that I think we are accustomed to Um, so I think there is also uh, less information than we typically might have uh, on on some of the other fires that have burned this year.
0: Yeah. And speaking of those other fires, that transitions us to my next question, which is how does this fire season in California and also just, you know, worldwide compared to other fire seasons we've seen, is it getting worse?
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's one of these really important questions, right? Um, I think there's, it's a complicated one in a sense, because we look at at fire and the, the history of fire has been one of fire suppression. And um, from what I've learned from scientists and, and from advocates is that fire is an essential tool to the health of these forests and the landscapes. Um, and so in terms of, of acreage, um, we're looking. if we're looking at across the West in the US, um, there's been about 6.4 million acres burned so far, 46,500, more than 46,500 fires um, to, to reach that total. Um, but I think the, the real question is gonna come down to the severity of the fire and the fire behavior itself. So it could be that this huge, it's a huge amount of acreage, right? When you hear that number 6.4 million, um, that tends to fall somewhat in line with with trends, um, as we've expected. So the main question is, what was left when this fire was burning, or when these fires were burning? Um, So if we wanna look specifically at California, um, California has had about 2.5 million acres burned so far. That's more than double the five-year average. So that statistic alone, of course, would be highly concerning. Um, but then you look at last year. So last year, more than 4 million acres burned. Um, it was an exceptional year. Of course, we had these lightning strikes that just set off these enormous blazes. And, and so it's unclear yet how we're going to end this year. There's still several months left in fire season, especially for areas like Southern California that are just getting into these Dry, hot, windy days um, where fires tend to burn big and fast. Um, so, so it could it could end up being comparable in terms of numbers. But really, what it's going to come down to is is how severe the fires burned. Um, we know so far that there have been some record breaking fires, fires that have demonstrated behavior that has been un- unheard of. Right. So. For example, the Dixie Fire, um, which almost reached a million acres just on its own. It evaded containment over and over and over. It was the first fire that sort of traveled from one side of the Sierra Nevada Range all the way to the other and burned through these granite ridges that nobody thought it would do. And then shortly after that, the Caldor Fire did the exact same thing. And so I think those are the types of things that sort of are hinting to this shift, to the, the change in the way that fire is burning, the ways in which that's going to permanently change the landscape. And then, of course, you know, we, we know that with climate change, things are getting hotter and heat also increases drought. And so when you have those two things together, it just sets the stage for uh, for worsening wildfires that leave much less in their wake.
0: What can we do? Uh, you know, we can't really control where lightning strikes, but what can we do mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, put these, these fires at a minimum, make sure that th- this scale of a f- of fire season is just scaled down a little bit more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do. Uh, certainly scientists have been really outspoken about just prepping these areas. So, so for years and years, um, officials stopped any and all fire. They They didn't let these areas burn. And so you had all of this vegetation just become overgrown. There are too many trees. What they call good fire, of course, is something that sort of burns closer to the ground. It's um, slower moving, it doesn't burn as hot. Um, those can be really important for those ecosystems and to make sure that these hotter fi- fires don't erupt and get out of control. So that's a main one. And then I think there's also this sense of, of I, think, I think preparing, preparing people for the inevitability that um, fire is a part of our landscape, it's a part of our ecosystem. And depending on where people put houses is obviously going to increase not only their risk, but the risk of ignition. So I think there needs to be a lot more education and planning, better understanding of um, the severity that that we can expect uh, to to only continue at this point um, and and hopefully then prioritizing uh, some of these important mitigation strategies.
0: What are locals whose houses have you know burned to the ground or they've had to evacuate have you talked to any of them like what are they saying about this
1: yeah i mean it really depends um so i was on the scene in the caldor fire um that was the one that reached really close to south lake tahoe which is you know of course a place that's world renowned so i think that kind of grabbed a lot of attention in terms of the evacuation um and luckily you know the, the the big part of that Town didn't burn, and I think people sort of saw that as, uh, you know, it's obviously a positive story. There were a lot of towns that that did burn in that fire, um, and and burned in the Dixie fire. And so I think, you know, depending on who you speak to, um, there of course are people who who lost everything and who are still determined to build back. But then you see on the other side of that, I mean, you see folks, even from the Paradise Fire, it's been years and they still, uh, they still have not even received the, the funding to, to rebuild their homes. So you have sort of a range of, of impacts. Um, and even the people who, say, didn't uh, get evacuated or didn't lose their homes or their town, a lot of a lot of these places they're they're living in constant fear during these seasons so i spoke to a lot of folks in a, t- in a town called quincy it's this beautiful mountain town tucked sort of near where the dixie fire tore through and they basically were terrorized for months they faced the smoke they were sheltering their neighbors who had lost everything um, and several of them were reconsidering whether or not they wanted to call this place home. So it is, um, you know, it's a devastating story either way. You look at just how people are living with fire and um, how they're being impacted by it. And so it does kind of, again, give um, even more urgency to this need of of prioritizing um, good fire and mitigation strategies and ensuring that Um, these fires don't burn quite as hot uh, to the best of our ability.
0: Gabrielle Cannon, thank you for talking to me today.
1: so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Gabrielle Cannon is a reporter for The Guardian who covers climate disasters. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, listen on their website, kgvm.org. Thanks for listening this week. Bye-bye.